Hi, this is Eric Corey Freed. And Eve Blossom. And this is Care by Design. This week on Care by Design, we continue our talk in part two with Michael Hepp and Angel Grant, where we discuss further about Angel and Michael's work in the end-of-life movement, about Michael's early experience with death, and about Angel and Michael's hopes for where the end-of-life movement goes next. Enjoy. So Michael, both of us are trained architects that shifted into social entrepreneurship using design as a vehicle systems change. You and Angel started Death Over Dinners and you and I have talked about the sense of place, of love and warmth around a table, in the home, in the public realm, with family and or friends, and what can transpire there. I thought that architecture would be a really powerful way, maybe the most powerful way to shape human experience. That was kind of the mythos around it, right? Combines all of the arts and the science into this one very powerful position. It was very appealing to me as like a, you know, a 19, 20 year old. And, and so I thought about how I wanted to create space in order to create experience. And then I realized um, along the way that you don't need much to create experience. And that's where I came to really appreciate the table and shared meals um, and, and eating together and cooking together as this, you know, in some ways this first architecture, but this primary function of architecture, something that draws us together, gives us an experience, transforms us and then releases us back into our lives, right? Like that's the dream of architecture to some extent. And a table does that better than any 10 to $100 million building that I know of. And, and it does it, you know, with four legs and something on top of it. And maybe it's the first architecture. And eating together is how we became human in the first place. It's how we made the evolutionary leap and how our brains grew and our ability to speak and in the ways that we speak came to be. And so it's like attached to our DNA, these two things. And I realized that I didn't need to practice capital A architecture, but that I could just create spaces with the table. And, and then started to play around with it in a lot of different ways. And one of the ways that became very clear to me was, um, was what Angel's speaking about, how it could reduce the distance between us. Because there's certainly plenty of dinners you go to and your experience isn't connection, right? And that may be Thanksgiving or that may be like um, a social gathering that may be a, you know, and a business dinner, et cetera, but you're not having this deeply connected experience. So what is it that creates that connection at the table? And it turned out the vulnerability, that authenticity, that allowing people to witness each other and to really expose themselves to show themselves to each other and then that takes design as well we're not just hardwired for vulnerability we're not hardwired for showing our most human beautiful vulnerable selves our fragility um, we're actually fairly hardwired for showing our strength you need designs that override the system to some extent and that's really what we started to think about with Death Over Dinner was 
how do you create a scalable dinner experience? For one, that's enough, you know, that in itself doesn't really make sense. That's a paradox, right? You can't scale the intimate. And that's what a, a dinner is. You can't scale the finite. And so we thought about how you can create enough safety and enough design within an actual experience where the experience people could create themselves. And so that's where um, this idea of pattern thinking and, and pattern language actually from an architecture perspective, but um, a fellow's Bay Area designer and thinker. And patterns just really intrigued me and, and how people can make them their own and how they can grow and scale and intimacy can happen all over the world at the same time. We own three Christopher Alexander first edition books in this household because we live in Berkeley. As you both talk about getting rid of the distance between us, and I'm just curious about how you're thinking about that differently or, or currently because of COVID and we're all having distance physically between us. One thing that I can appreciate about now is that tech is actually, a lot of tech is actually working to reduce the distance between us during this COVID era as to where a lot of tech historically tends to pull us into isolation. You know, with EOL Collective, in the same way that we built Death Over Dinner to reduce the distance between us, EOL Collective is reducing the distance between not only uh, community, because you can find community there, but between people and what they need right now, um, as far as support and, and tending to their end of life wishes and plans. The thing that comes up for me when you ask that question, I came across this article that Elizabeth Renzetti wrote about a month into, or a month and a half into the lockdown. And there was this line, she, this whole piece is worth reading, but this one line that she wrote, it seems to me that we've quickly, but perhaps only temporarily, lost our appetite to strive for perfection. COVID has definitely, this great pause has definitely had us give up this, for many of us, this notion of, of the perfect. And that, that notion of the perfect is maybe one of the most uh, dangerous ideas in the realm of human connection, right? Perfection definitely stands in the way of, of connection. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an invention. This, this notion that doesn't have us show ourselves to each other, see ourselves, you know, we are separated. Our bodies are quite literally weaponized. We're dangerous to each other, which is an awful thing to think about. I've never thought of human bodies as dangerous, ever, even being in war zones. I haven't, like, I see human hearts even when people are angry. I don't see people as dangerous. I now see people as dangerous, like they are a threat, um, which is a terrible thing. So, you know, in that, in that awful, you know, current reality, there are some things that are driving people towards each other. And people do get more quickly to the heart of the matter. You know, the, the shell has been broken. We're oozing out all over the place all of the time. <laughs> on in, you know, on our Zoom calls. When I was in architecture school, I knew almost immediately that I did not want to follow the traditional career path. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that 
wasn't it. I knew sitting in a corporate office, wearing a cheap tie, picking up red lines all day was not for me. And I've said this, I've said this to my um, mentees and I've said this to my students and I've said it to my friends over the years that probably the, the luckiest thing for me was discovering that early that I didn't want a traditional career path. You also didn't have any semblance of a traditional career path. It doesn't even seem, <laughs> it doesn't even seem like you started one and said, whoop, and then changed. It seemed like right from the start, you're starting city repair with Mark Lakeman here in Portland, which then also then became Communicatecture, which is still to this day, his, his firm he's still practicing under. You founded night school, the city arts festival, you then founded Family Supper, which was a pop-up restaurant, which then led to real restaurants. And yet you're still thinking of yourself as an architect all this while. I don't know, it just, I, I, I'd love to hear from you about that journey and how easy or hard it was for you to struggle with your identity as an artist, your identity as an architect, knowing that, that everybody else loves those convenient labels and boxes that they put us in. Did you ever... Did you ever mourn for a traditional career that you never had or did you just never look back? Yeah, no, I never mourned for a traditional career. I did really love the, the moment after I had written a book that when somebody asked me what I do, that I could actually just give them one word and, be, and I'd be okay with it. I'd be like, oh, I'm a writer. I just wrote a book. It was something because there's so much contained in that book that I felt okay about it being reduced down to one word. It's a really thoughtful question. It relates back to death, um, not surprisingly. My father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's when I was in second grade, and he died when I was 13. And when he died on Halloween, and I actually woke up the very moment that he took his last breath and went back to sleep and didn't know why I was up, and I woke up that morning, and then I just knew that he was no longer breathing. But I went to school that day because I didn't, my family didn't know how to deal with the grief and I didn't really have anywhere else to go. And not only did I go to school, I actually went out that night. It was Halloween and I'm a 13 year old. Um, and I went out and I didn't tell a single person that my father had died. And I'm, and it's, and I actually don't regret that I didn't. I think it was very smart that I didn't. I, I think I intuitively knew that no one around me could hold that weight. But a thing that happened in doing that was I was like the music skipped a beat. I was slightly off track. I was having the same experiences, but I was looking at them, my friends, from an objective view, not just like one of the herd or one of the pack. I had had an experience that I knew that they couldn't relate to. I started to get interested in big questions in, I got interested in mysticism at like age 14, right? And, and transcendental meditation and a, a number of different things that were much more relatable to youth now, but back then made me very, very unrelatable. And, and then I ended up finding mentors. You know, Mark Lakeman, when we became um, partners and founders of City Repair, he was 20 years older than me or 15. He still um, is. It's, yeah, it is today. But I started finding these incredible people that I resonated with. And I knew that I wasn't going to follow any of the, you know, the, the well-laid um, lines in the snow. It was just, it was pretty clear that I was going to be somewhat solitary until it wasn't. There are very common things that you discover when you're a weird architect. And I'm interested to know if you agree with this or not. 
but myself being a self-diagnosed weird architect and having known very early on that I was a weird architect and that traditional whatever wasn't in it for me, when you identify others, mostly as mentors who then, who then help you, they have similar stories. It seems that all of my mentors that I've been fortunate enough to have all have the story of being seven or eight years old and drawing things and designing things intuitively, not knowing that they are designing as a verb, but just doing. That's a very common thing that happens. And it's always around seven and eight. And there's maybe there's something Freudian to it, or maybe there's something um, Maslowian to it, who knows. But you said being out of step caused you to almost see the world like a, a frame or two out of it. It's made you into what you are today, which is what I would call, for lack of a better word, um, an activist. How do you feel about that word? And how do you feel about that that role and responsibility I'm, I'm, I'm hoisting upon you. I mean, I, I didn't draw, I started making forts, all kinds of forts. I actually, yeah, I created so many built environments out in the woods. But I, I think, I mean, I was in a lot of pain as a kid. I was in a tremendous amount of pain and I got really interested in, in pain and how you could potentially relieve pain and suffering. And I mean, that's what turned me into an activist. It's always fun to mention in these things. One of my early mentors was actually LSD. <laughs> when the parents were gone and there was no, and I couldn't relate to my teenage friends. Phenomenal to be able to find psychedelics. It's funny, I'm not necessarily recommending it for all 14 year olds, but uh, <laughs> that was really the combination of the pain and then seeing the pain changed into something being able to go into it and see it change and have it transformed i think that and the mentors that i surrounded myself with are what made it an imperative that i would wake up every morning and like my client was going to be civilization like that just was that i haven't been able to shake um, if anybody knows how to cure oneself of that i, I, I might be interested in that trial so <laughs> yeah i think it's funny that I lived next to a creek and forts. That's what I did all my life, just building forts. And we had gray clay that you could, in one area where the, the stream was, and we would make forts and then we'd make little, you know, plates and, you know, cups. And, and, and every, every couple of weeks, of course, there would be a big rain or a big storm or what have you, and you have to start all over again. And we, yes, yes, recreate all over again. I love that we had that in common. What in your wildest dreams would you like to see occur for people next in regards to end of life or thoughts and experiences around death? You know what I want is I want to be shocked. Um, I want to be so surprised and so delighted by what empowered people dream up for the end of life space, things that I couldn't even imagine. Like a, a year from now, I want to be like, how could we have ever thought that people would be doing X, Y, and Z and so beautifully. Um, I think that we're vibrating at such a low level frequency that our, we can't even imagine what it would look like when people start to vibrate at a higher frequency. Like I think about the Upanishads or the Vedas, like that comes from collective wisdom, a bunch of people practicing, living intentionally close to each other. And so my hope is that this incredible ocean of human beings that are working on conscious dying are helping the world to elevate and empower people and realize that your death is yours. 
It's not something that just happens to you, it's yours. I mean, weddings used to be things that we were just at the receiving end of, and then people took some sense of ownership and empowerment in that process, and then creativity and play and beauty can happen. So yeah, I want to be wildly shocked. That's a great answer. Eve, when you asked the question, the first word that popped into my mind was agency. But I want to see this movement of people turning towards their own mortality, turning towards the actual, like real, not just some thought in the back of your head, but the actual like, I'm going to die. This body is going to die. What do I want that to look like? And it's not like we can control it by any stretch, but if there are parts that I will have agency over, just to name them. And the, the more that we think about and name what we want, the much more likely we are to get it. And so I would love to see this movement uh, of turning towards our own mortality reach into every little corner for starts of this country, of the places where people still tend to shy away from it. And then more specifically, I would love to see funerals actually reflect the human who is being honored. I've been to so many funerals in my life where I'm sitting there and thinking, this sucks. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> aside from the death itself, but this gathering in no way actually reflects this human who I love so deeply, who is now dead. Um, and I think a big part of that falls under the umbrella of agency and naming to your loved ones what it would look like to honor you and to honor the life that you chose in your years on this planet. That was a great answer, Angel. The thing that always bubbles up for me is the pure love that just flows out of both of you. And then the old souls that you are, you know, like where you're picking up and you're carrying it forward further for a lot of us. And I've always felt that way from the moment I met you guys individually and then how I see your work together. And I just don't think it's by accident that you guys met. I don't think it's by accident that you work on the projects you work on. I don't think it's by accident that I got to be knowing you. I don't think it's by accident that you draw the energy that you draw and do these incredible projects. And then it has this bigger life. You were saying, Angel, you know, Michael does these things at scale. But then you also talked about the intimacy of the table and how many people can do something intimate and then do something at scale, right? Exactly. And hold both energies. So I'm astounded by the two of you. Mm -hmm. If I continue, I'll cry. So you, I'm already crying. <laughs> <laughs> that feels like a warm, fuzzy blanket, Eve. Angel and Michael, it's been really wonderful to have you on Care by Design. And we look forward to following your exciting and timely journey and being a part of the EOL community. It's been an honor to be with you both, Eve and Eric, and all three of you, Michael. You too. Oh, oh thanks, Angel. Yeah. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed today's podcast of Care by Design with Eric Corey Freed and me, Eve Blossom, as your hosts. We look forward to our next interview this upcoming Tuesday. Visit us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Care by Design Pod 
And there you can see additional show notes of each of our podcast interviews and additional posts on new podcast interviews. So tune in this Tuesday for our next Care by Design podcast. Hear us then.